today, I guess if you could title the sermon, I would say, How Confession Saves You, Part 3. It has been a month, I think, since I've been back at Bethlehem. And if you remember before my little hiatus there, I had started preaching on, I guess you could call it maybe a series if you wanted to. And I started that series with talking about timely and eternal salvation. And I'm not going to revisit all of that, but because it's been so long, I'll just kind of give you the, a, a brief summary of the things that we had talked about where we as primitive Baptists, we do not believe that your belief, your acceptance, your confession, your repentance, your baptism, and all those different types of things we do not believe that those things are the things that save you in eternity, right? We believe those things that when you see those actions in a person, we believe that those things are evidences that you already have been born again and heaven is your home, right? So we would say that you do not believe in order to get eternal life, we say you believe because you already have eternal life, right? You don't believe in order to get born again, you believe because you have been born again. I like, I believe it's Acts 1348, it says, as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. So we would say that belief, we would say that repentance, we would say all those types of things are evidences that God has already done a work of grace and given you a new spirit and a new heart. And that is the fruit that we see come forth because we have been born again children of God, right? A good analogy that some people use at, at, at times is a baby that is born for example, uh, Sam, who is coming tomorrow, when Sam comes into this world, Brother Josh and Sister Bethany's child, when Sam comes into this world, Sam will cry, right? But he will not cry in order to become a child of Josh and Bethany. He will cry because he already is a child of Josh and Bethany. The crying is simply an evidence that there is life there, right? And it's the same way for a child of God. When we see a calling out to the Lord, when we see a confession of our sins, when we see a repentance, when we see those things, it's because we are already a child of the Father, right? And so the series that I started about, when, I, when we talked about the belief and the repentance and the confession and the acceptance and the baptism and those types of things, if those things are not required in order for you to go to heaven, if those things don't save you in eternity, what do they save you from? Because they absolutely save you from some things. But they save you from things on this side of heaven. We talked about um, <clears throat> repentance. And I, and I think all these are going to be on the podcast, or some of them already are on the podcast, if you want to go back and read those. Or listen to those. We talked about repentance. How repentance saves you in this life. A turning from your sin. And it saves you from the consequences of those sinful actions. Right? We talked about confession uh, for two different Sundays. And we tried to make the point that confession again is an evidence that God already dwells in you. In 1 John 4, 15 it says, notice this. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. That's a, a simple verse that everybody can understand, that where you find somebody confessing that Jesus is the Son of God, it's because God dwells in him, right? And he dwells in God. The Bible says, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And it also says that no man can say that Jesus is the Son of God except by the Holy Ghost. So it is the Spirit dwelling inside of us that prompts us to make those confessions, right? So confession, it is easily, easy to see in the Bible that when you find somebody confessing, you find somebody that has God dwelling in them and they are dwelling in God, right? The first two times we talked about confession, one of those we talked about was confessing our sins 
to the Father. The Bible says, whosoever confesseth and forsaketh his sins shall find mercy. And how sometimes our confessing of our wrongdoings, our sinful actions, somehow stay a chastisement from God or a judgment from God that we might otherwise have heaped upon us, right? So confessing of our sins to the Lord, acknowledging those sins, we find mercy from that. And my goodness, mercy saves us, right? God's mercy saves us from terrible things in this life. We also talked about how confession saves us in the sense that we confess our faults one to another. It says, confess your faults one to another that ye may be healed. There are times when we offend each other, right? And many of those times are inadvertent. I didn't realize that I offended you. But now that I'm aware of it, I want to tell you that I'm sorry for doing those things. Do you know that has a way of healing a person's heart? It's like a band-aid for a cut. Confessing our faults one to another has a way of healing relationships, right? But the last part today, I guess if you could title the sermon, I would say, How Confession Saves You, Part 3, right? First, first one, Part 1, was confession to the Father. Part 2 is confessing to each other. Part 3 is the confession that is probably the most misused or misunderstood in the religious world. I'm going to flip around a whole lot today. So you can flip with me, or if you want to jot these down, uh, it might save you uh, from flipping as much. The confession that is the most misunderstood comes from Romans, the 10th chapter. In verse 9, it says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Now, I want to cut the middle part of that out and just focus on confession. So let me read it this way, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus Thou shalt be saved. Now, there is a confession that if you go, um, you know, I've seen them in, uh, you know, traveling. I've seen them in bathrooms, uh, you know, in uh, in gas stations alone. There'll be a little little, uh, pamphlet or something, and it'll tell you this is what you've got to do to be saved. And one of the items on there, if you want to be saved from hell, one of the things you've got to do is you've got to confess, right? And they'll use Romans 10, 9. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, thou shalt be saved. Now, Pause Romans 10 for a second. I want to come back at the end to Romans 10 because you cannot understand Romans 10 unless you have some understanding of the of the Old Testament and the history of the Jewish people. Right. Uh, It's a very dangerous thing to take one or two verses here and there out of the Bible and build entire doctrines on those things if you don't understand the context or where they're coming from. For example, John 3.16, right? Very popular verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But listen, let me flip over there for a second. What about this that sets the stage for John 3.16? Notice this, it says... And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world, and it goes on and explains John 3.16. If you go out into the streets and you walk the streets, right, and you say, can you tell me what John 3.16 says, you probably are going to get a lot of people that are able to give you a pretty close Um, version of what John 3.16 says. But then if you said, okay, can you tell me about Moses and the serpent in the wilderness? They'd be like, I have no idea what you're talking about, right? 
Well, before we get into John 3.16, we've got to get into John 3.14 because he uses Moses holding up the brass serpent in the wilderness when the children of Israel were suffering to lay the groundwork for John 3.16. You see, you need to have a good idea, of a, a good working knowledge of the Bible from front to back because it all ties together, right? Same with Romans 10. We can't just pull Romans 10 out and preach Romans 10 unless we have a good working knowledge of what in the world Paul is talking about when he writes this letter. So bear with me here as we go back through the Old Testament and look at some things. And if you can pay attention with me and if the Lord will bless, I think it will bring a good light, not a new light, but it'll bring a good light to an understanding of what Paul is saying in Romans, the 10th chapter. Okay, so first we've got to go back. And we've got to understand the history or some of the history of the law that God gave to the Jewish people. You see, you've got to understand, God did not give his law to every nation across the whole world. God chose a specific nation and he gave his laws to that nation. All right, well, the question is, why? Why did he give these laws to this particular nation? Now, I've got several verses here I want to read. One of the verses says that the law was added because of transgression right the law was given to these people because of transgressions that means that these wicked fallen corrupt beings were violating what god deemed is right and holy and appropriate so he gave them a law to let them know what is right what is wrong what is holy and what is profane and where his standard was so they would know now notice this in Romans, the third chapter here, <clears throat> notice what it says in Romans 3.20. It says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Here's the key I want. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Do you get me? What is one of the purposes of God giving these laws to the children of Israel? He says, because for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Paul goes on and says, I wouldn't have known what sin was unless the law told me, right? He says over in Romans, the seventh chapter, notice this. <clears throat> he says, wherefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. You know, there are some people say, oh, there's something wrong with the old law. You know, the, the old law was, was flawed. It was messed up. So the Lord had to come up with a different way. The Lord didn't get it right the first time, so he had to come up with a different way. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. And, it, and Paul says, was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid, but sin that it might appear sins so that sin would be recognized as sin worketh death in me by that which is good. You see, there's something inside all of us. It's called the flesh. It's called the natural man. And that spirit does not like boundaries and does not like laws. And when God gave the law, that spirit of the flesh saw the law. And what did it want to do? It wanted to break it because that's the spirit of the flesh, right? And it says, and that brought death into me. The violation of that law brought death. And he says, sin that, that might appear sin working death in me by that which is good. 
But notice what it says. That sin by the commandment or the law might become exceeding sinful. Now, the Bible's told us very clearly that one of the purposes of the law was to give us a knowledge of sin. And so that we would realize the exceeding sinfulness of sin so that we would see what things are in this life, the things that we can say, the things that we can do. What, what things offend God? Is, is loving your family an offense to God? Is abandoning your family an offense to God? The law tells us those things, right? And so one of the purposes of the law was to show us what God's standard is, right? Now, the Bible also says in Galatians, the third chapter, in verse 24, it says, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. Now, what in the world is a schoolmaster? All right, I should have wrote this definition down when I looked it up. A schoolmaster was usually a person of a particular household whose responsibility was to follow the young people of that household to keep them in line morally and in other ways, maybe as far as maybe education goes. And it was forbidden for a young person to leave their house without their schoolmaster it's kind of like a personal as a matter of fact one of the definitions is a tutor it's a personal private um uh relationship that if i'm a young person and 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 the law was that you had to have this person with you up until what they considered you know to be an adult and so you leave the house you've got to have your schoolmaster there your schoolmaster goes with you and your schoolmaster's responsibility is to make sure you stay in line morally Oh, don't. It's it's a lot like maybe a very involved parent or maybe a teacher, but it's like a parent and a teacher times a thousand because they go everywhere with you. And what does this schoolmaster do? Don't do that. 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 They're keeping you in line morally. Do you know how exhausting that would be for a child and schoolmaster? Don't, 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 don't. And so the Bible says the law was our schoolmaster. The law's purpose was to show us this is a violation of God's law. That's a violation of God's law. That's a violation. That's a violation. That's a violation. And it was a tremendous burden on the people. Are you following me? Now, what was the problem then? All sounds good. Well, what's the problem? Well, as I said earlier, sometimes people will say, well, the law was flawed, so God had to come up with a new way. But that's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible says in Hebrews, the eighth chapter, he says, for if that first covenant, which is the law, if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. We say, oh, it says right there, there's something wrong with the first law. Keep reading. He says, for finding fault with them, not it, The Bible doesn't say that God found fault with his law. The fault came with the people that were supposed to be keeping it, right? The Bible says, for that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I shall make a new covenant. Now, what was the problem? What was their fault? 
This was their fault. It's the same fault you and I would have had. Is that we would and they did focus solely on how much of it they had kept and turned a blind eye to how much of it they had violated. But see, that wasn't the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law, which we'll get to in a minute, was to the purpose of the law was to lay a groundwork for something better that was coming. But without the groundwork, there would have never been an appreciation for the better thing coming. You see, the purpose of the law was to show us our sin. But the people get the law and all they can see is all the check boxes they have done it, done it, done it, done it, done it, done it. And they turned a blind eye to the ones that they had violated. That was the fault because the, the law did not do for the people what it was intended to do for the people, which in a sense was to break them and show their unworthiness, to show their wretchedness, to show how they are not able to keep these laws. It was too much of a burden. What's the proof of that? Well, let's go over to Luke, the 18th chapter for a second. Luke, the 18th chapter, what you find that mentality, that mentality is best seen among the Jewish Pharisees, right? What do the Jewish Pharisees think? Oh, we got it. We're good. I hadn't violated God's law. Jesus even tells them in Matthew, the 23rd chapter, he says, oh, my goodness, you think you are so pure and holy, but on the inside, you are rotten. Luke, the 18th chapter. Does this sound like somebody that's very aware of his sins? Does this sound like somebody who has looked at God's law, realized how, fall, how, how much he has fallen short of that, and is crying out to God? Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood up and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I'm not as other men. I'm not as an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. And I'm not as this poor publican over here who's a sinner. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all I possess. What does that sound like to you? That sounds like a guy who looks at God's law and says, nailed it. I got it. But that's not the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law was to give us the knowledge of sin and to show us how far we have fallen from God's standard. And that would lay the groundwork for something better. Are you with me? What about the rich young ruler? Certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? You see the message? Jesus is trying to get him to see there's boxes that aren't checked. Why do you call me good? None is good, save one that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor thy father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth up. The purpose of the law was to show man's inability to keep it. And God's holiness. You see, the Bible tells us, it, we read it in, in, in uh, Romans, the seventh chapter, that the law was good. The law was holy. The law was just. But the people looked at the law and just kept saying, I'm doing a great job. But the purpose of it was to show them you're not. Right? Now, 
Do you remember back in the Old Testament when they would sacrifice? Let me see if this verse here, Roman, uh, Hebrews the 10th chapter. They would take animals and they were sacrificed. If you read through the Bible, there are times it is a bloodbath, right? Why did they do those things? Did, did the sacrifice of those animals make them clean and make them holy and put away their sins? The Bible says it didn't. The Bible says the blood and bulls and goats can't take away your sins. What was the purpose of those things? Hebrews, the 10th chapter says, For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? Because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscious of sins. Notice this. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. You see, God even put something in there. He put like a checks and balances system saying, all right, here's the deal with these people. All they're going to recognize is the good that they do. If I don't put something in here to bring them to remembrance that there are areas that you fall short in righteousness, they'll just go on and they'll never realize that they have fallen short. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short, right, of the glory of God. So the Lord even put checks and balances in here to say, hey, every year come and sacrifice. And when you take those precious lambs and you sacrifice those lambs, it is a reminder to you that you are a sinner, right? Now, I want you to notice this verse here as I transition. Hebrews, the seventh chapter, verse 19. On this side, we've got the law. I've told you the purpose of the law to, to, to bring a knowledge of sin, to show how insufficient man is in keeping God's standards. And it was good and it was holy. And it says, but says the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did by which we draw nigh unto God. You see, all this was, the Bible says this was a shadow. And in in a sense, this shadow of things to come, this schoolmaster was a, and you read through the Bible, it'll tell you time and time again, this schoolmaster was a tremendous burden to the people. And if it would have, if he had not have found fault with them and they would have responded correctly to this, they would have been broken under this burden. But they weren't broken under the burden of the law because we see over in the New Testament, the rich young ruler, the Pharisee saying, we've got it, man, we've got it. We have done the things that God has told us to do and we are righteous because of it. You say they missed it. They missed the point. What good, listen to me now, what good is a savior if you don't think you need saving? Think about that. How can you possibly embrace and have gratitude for a Savior if you don't think you need saving? And that's where the Jewish people were. We don't need saving. We have followed God's law. We're righteous because we have followed God's law. What's coming? The Bible says it made nothing perfect but the bringing in of a better hope. Here comes Jesus. 
Here comes Jesus on the scene and you've got a nation who doesn't think they need him, right? So who's the first person to come along in the New Testament to start reminding them again of the sins and their shortcomings? It's John the Baptist, right? Old Testament, what have you got? A sacrifice for sins every year so they can remember that they've fallen short. They don't get it. Here comes John the Baptist out of the wilderness. He's wearing camel's hair and he's eating honey. And he's not going up to these people saying, Yay! Good job, Israel! You did it! You're righteous! You've kept God's law! That is not the message that John the Baptist brought. He brought the message that the sacrifices should have, they should have gotten from the sacrifices and that was repent, right? You've fallen short. You need to repent. It was another Another method that the Lord had to show the people that you've fallen short and you are not capable of developing your own righteousness. Because until we get you to see that, you will never, ever, ever appreciate and accept the Savior that is about to come on the scene. What does John the Baptist say when these Pharisees that thought they checked all the boxes come up to the baptisms? What does John the Baptist tell them? He says, you generation of vipers, Bring forth fruit, meat for repentance. We've got to see, you've got to acknowledge that you're a sinner. You've got to see how you have violated and fallen short of God's law, or you're never going to embrace the Son of God who's about to come walking down that road. And so John the Baptist begins to preach those messages. Boy, they accepted it well, didn't they? No. No, they didn't. Cost John the Baptist his life. Without the law, it is impossible, impossible to appreciate a Savior. Without understanding that we have fallen short of the glory of God, it is impossible to appreciate the Lord Jesus Christ like we should. Now, the Bible says, what is this better thing? The law was good, but the law... One of the purposes of the law was to usher in something better. Now, if I've been, if I have been beaten up, physically beaten up, and I'm just laying here at death's door, you know what I appreciate? I appreciate the paramedic coming in to save me, to help me. But the people didn't feel feel the people did not feel beat up by the law. The people felt righteous because of the law. I've done it all. Good, what is something better? The Bible says that the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. What is good? The law is good. It has a good purpose, primarily that it lays the groundwork for a savior. If you interpret it correctly and realize you fall short. That's good. What's better? Grace is better. Grace is better than the law. What is grace? The Bible tells us in Ephesians, the second chapter, it's by grace, for by grace are you saved, not of works. You're saved by grace. We're talking about heaven now. For by grace are you saved, not of works. And notice this. Romans, the third chapter. I told you I was going to flip a lot. Romans, the third chapter. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. 
For all have sinned and come short of the, of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. You see, the law brought the knowledge of sin, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. What is grace? Grace is giving you something that you don't deserve. Grace is not giving you something in return for something good you've done. Grace is not giving you something because you kept the law. Grace is giving you something that in spite of you breaking the law, right? How much better is that than getting something because you did what was right? There's something better than that. That's getting something when you couldn't do what was right. That's what grace is, right? And I've used this example here before, and I've used it other places. Just bear with me. To explain grace, let me explain it like this. I have people, I have my own business, and I have people that work for me. And we have an agreement that I will pay you X amount of dollars for you to work so many hours per week. If they do that, and then at the end of that week, they come up to me and they say, I've done what you told me to do, and now it's time for you to pay me. I cannot say I'm about to give you this as an act of grace because that would say I'm giving you something and you don't deserve it. That'd make them mad, wouldn't it? And they quit. Grace is not giving something to somebody in exchange for them meeting certain conditions, right? You get that? If I tell them, hey, do these things and I'll pay you and they meet those conditions and then I'll pay them, that's not grace. <laughs> If they meet those conditions, as soon as they meet those conditions, I become a debtor to them, meaning I owe them something. Many people will tell you that the Lord has made a, a deal with you that if you will believe, repent, confess, accept, and be baptized, in exchange for that, He'll give you eternal life. Well, brothers and sisters, you just made the creator of the heavens and earth, God Almighty, you've made Him a debtor to filthy mankind. It doesn't work that way. God is not a debtor to mankind because God didn't give us that in exchange for those things. God gave us eternal life because of grace. Amen. Meaning you don't have to meet these conditions. You can't meet these conditions. And I'm going to give it to you anyway. You may disagree with me, but that's better than the law. Amen. Right? And that's what the Bible says. But the bringing in of a better hope the bringing in of a better hope now. <clears throat> now let's go back to Romans 10. Romans, the 10th chapter. Romans, the 10th chapter is a letter <clears throat> written by Paul to the church in Rome, primarily Gentiles, not Jewish people. But in this particular section of this letter, he is talking to the people, the church at Rome, about how he feels about the Jewish nation, right? <clears throat> and I want you to notice this, keeping in mind all the things we've talked about. He writes to them and says, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. An interesting thing, too. Let me stop right there. Do you know when you read through the Bible, 
nowadays, especially in the, in the religious world, nowadays you hear a lot of this. Are you saved? 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 Have you done this? Have you done that? Have you done this? Have you done this? Are you saved? You don't see that dynamic playing out when you read through the Bible. You don't see people running and say, are you saved? Are you saved? Have you done this? Have you done that? The Jewish people did not have a concept of, I've got a, uh, I've got to get saved. That was just not even a concept that you, that you see them talking about in the Bible. They believed we're God's people. He gave us the law and we're righteous because we keep the law. And Paul says, my desire and prayer for Israel is that they might be saved. Saved from what? Read Romans the 10th chapter. And if you can find one verse in Romans the 10th chapter that's talking about people going to hell and burning in a lake of fire or people going to heaven and living in eternity with him forever, you'll find something I can't find. Nowhere in the 10th chapter are we talking about people going to hell and people going to heaven. Hell and heaven are mentioned, but not in that context. What does he want them to be saved from? Read on. He says, For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. A lot of us fall in that category. Love the Lord, but it's not based on truth. And it's not based on knowledge. He says, notice this, For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. And he goes on down to verse 9 and then says, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, thou shalt be saved. What in the world is Paul talking about here? Paul is telling these Gentiles about the Jewish people and he's telling you what I've already told you, that they missed the point of the law. And he says they're walking around trying to establish their own righteousness by keeping the law and then something better comes along whose name is Jesus and they reject that better thing and they reject their righteousness being by the work and faithfulness of Jesus Christ And they're ignorant. That's what he says. That's not my words. He says they are ignorant of God's righteousness. They're going about to establish their own righteousness and they've not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Now, this is real important right here. Key word in the whole thing I've been telling you. It does not say this, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, Jesus, thou shalt be saved. What's the word I left out there? Paul says that this confession is to confess not Jesus. This this confession is to confess the Lord Jesus. Are you with me? Paul says you're ignorant. I'm not doubting that you don't love God. I don't doubt that you've got a zeal for God. But it's not according to truth. And he says you're ignorant. Because you think your righteousness is established by what you do. And because of that, you can never appreciate the Savior that has come. And he says, you need to confess that he's not just Jesus. He's not just Joseph's son. He's not just Mary's son. He's the Lord. And this is what the definition of Lord means. I I looked it up. To whom a person belongs 
in which he has the power of deciding. He is the owner and the master indicating servanthood. Ooh, they didn't like that. You see what Paul's writing? He said, listen, you need to confess that Jesus is not just a man. He's, he's more than a prophet. He's more than just a good teacher. You need to confess that he is a person to whom you belong and he has the power of deciding over you that he is your master, he is your owner, and you are his servant. And what did they do? Oh no, we're of Abraham's seed. He said they just would not accept him as Lord. They refused to say he is up here, he is the son of God, and we are down here broken by the law, unable to obtain righteousness on our own. Praise God for grace in sending his son to, to save us and die on the cross for us because we can't save ourselves. That's what Paul wanted them to get, and they didn't get it. So much so that they eventually killed, him, killed uh, the Lord Jesus because of it. You see, this is not about confessing Jesus. This is about confessing that he is Lord. Now, in Galatians, the fifth chapter, tying all this together, Verse uh, chapter 5, stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ, Christ hath made us free and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage which is the law. Behold I, Paul say unto you that if ye be circumcised, which was a, a following of the law, if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. He's saying circumcision and following the law is not, is not what binds you to Christ. He says, For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to the whole law. Paul is saying, if you believe that your righteousness comes from following the law through circumcision, through this, through that, and through the other, he says you're a debtor to the whole law. And he says, Christ is become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, Ye are fallen from grace. All right, that's, that's the whole theme of the book of Galatians is these, these, this church at Galatia, they were, they were the law people. They were the people that believed that they were, uh, they were made righteous and, and uh, they were holy because of what they had done. Paul comes along and begins to teach them. They come out of that. They see the need for a Savior. They embrace the Lord Jesus Christ and they're walking in grace. But then some teachers come back in and begin to teach them, taking them back to the law, saying, no, 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 Paul's wrong. Let's go back to following the law. And Paul says, if you believe you're justified by the law, you have fallen from grace, not fallen out of grace, because that would be impossible and totally nullify the definition of grace. He says you haven't fallen out of grace, you've fallen from grace. And brothers and sisters, there are many of God's people that have fallen from grace. Some have never, never obtained the understanding. I want you to think about this. When I fall, any time I have ever fallen, I went from a higher point to a lower point, right? That's the very def definition of the word fall. If I go from here and I fall down these steps, I went from up high to somewhere down low. 
If you fall from grace, you went from somewhere up high to something lower, right? You know why Zacchaeus climbed up in the tree? You hear the songs, you've read it in Luke the 19th chapter. Do you know why Zacchaeus climbed up in the tree? Because he could not see Jesus when he was down low. He had to get up somewhere high. And when he got up high, he could see better and truly see the Lord. When you are understanding grace, when you see yourself as a ruined, condemned, rotten sinner, and you understand that unless the Lord chose to save you by His grace, there would be no salvation for you. You are on a higher plane and seeing the Lord in ways you'll never see Him otherwise. But if you fall from that, you fall to a lower point and you're like Zacchaeus running around saying, where's the Lord? Now, let me leave you with these a couple of examples for me from my personal examples. Most everybody in here knows that we've been members of the Primitive Baptist Church um, about 11 years, maybe almost 12. Uh, before then, I was um, very much a um, you got to do XYZ and all these things in order to be saved eternally from your sins. So I spent a good deal of time knocking on doors, and at the time, at the time it was, I was at its, it was at the peak for me. I was uh, in school in Birmingham, and during lunch hour or, or after school, or if we had a break, I would go. You know, we'd walk the streets, homeless people. I'd knock on doors, and you know, I spent a lot of time trying to get people to heaven. All right, and one of the questions I would always ask pretty early on in those conversations was. Do you believe you're going to heaven? Yes. And then I would ask them, why? Why do you believe you're going to heaven? And I, 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 I submit to you if I were to go out there today and I were to find 100 people and I were to ask 100 people the same question, the answers would be the same. Why, if you believe you're going to heaven, why is it that you believe that you're going to heaven? And I would say, well, I can't think of one, but just, just for the sake of saying it, I would say 99.9% of the answers I got began with the word I. Because I. Because I go to church. Because I pray. Because I am a good person. Because I believe. Because I, 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 on and on and on. One woman even told me, I've probably told you before, she was actually a Jewish woman in Birmingham, not far from Glen Iris Church over there. And me and my buddy went in there and we started talking to her. And she was an old Jewish lady. And she spent a lot of her time uh, over in um, um, Jerusalem and places like that. She said, I'm going to heaven because I am a good person. She said, but mostly I'm going to heaven because I have walked the very same streets that Jesus walked. I love you, God love you, but that ain't good enough for me. I can't sink my teeth into that. Do you see all these people that I've talked to, it's always I. I've checked the boxes. I've kept the law. God said, believe, I checked that box. God said, repent, I've checked, I, I, I. Nobody I ever talked to that I can remember 
said the only reason that I'm going to be in heaven is because God by his mercy and grace knew me before the foundation of the world chose me before the foundation of the world set my destination to be with him in heaven sent his sent his son to pay the price for sins that I could never ever pay myself nobody said that it was always I brothers and sisters when you it starts with I you're under the law and Christ is of no effect to you not meaning that you're not saved not meaning that you're not his but Christ is no effect of you here And you have fallen from grace, from your understanding of grace, right? And what is Paul saying? My heart's desire for Israel is they would be saved from their ignorance. That what they did is what makes them righteous. I have the same experience that Paul had. So many people, what you do is what makes you righteous, is what they believe. What I do is what makes them right. He said, I want you to be saved from that because there's a higher plane to be on. There's a better plane to be on. That better thing is Christ. The higher plane is grace and understanding it and accepting it and believing it. But in order for you to do that, the law has had to have its effect on you. And the purpose of the law was to give you the knowledge of sin and that sin would be exceedingly sinful to you. You know what I think most people today don't embrace the Lord as a Savior? is because sin is not exceedingly sinful to them. You watch TV lately? Brother Tim's preached on it before. No shame. Not a lot of shame out there anymore for the things that people do. Not a lot of shame. Sin is not exceedingly sinful to us. But by golly, if it is, it makes it a whole lot easier to look over and see and see the Lamb of God, that covenant which is better, coming to you and taking you to a higher plane of grace and allowing you to see the Lord in a way you've never seen Him. I experienced that. Because I myself, at one time, if you would have asked me, I said, I'm going to heaven, and I would have started it with I. But when I came to the Primitive Baptist Church, I realized that that I had to die. And it wasn't about what I had done, but it's what about the Lord had done. And once I saw that, it was like I climbed that tree Zacchaeus was in and I could see the Lord in a way I'd never seen Him. And I don't want to fall out of that tree. I want to stay there. Romans, the 10th chapter, you'll hear many, many people tell you that you've got to confess in order to be saved. Brothers and sisters, the confession in Romans, the 10th chapter, has nothing to do with you going to heaven. The confession in the Romans, the 10th chapter, is to confess him as Lord and climb that tree of grace and get up in there. And in that tree of grace, there is a wonderful salvation and deliverance from the yoke of bondage of your insufficiency to be righteous. I hope that that has made sense to you. And I'm thankful for the Lord for his mercy and for his grace. And I pray that you are too.